We are now in the middle of a great church fight. Galatians 2 is perhaps the greatest, most important church fight of all time. It is a fight that must be waged in every generation, however. It is the fight for the gospel of God's grace. We talk much of Christian unity, but if there is to be any genuine unity, then there must be something around which to unify. We know that doctrine divides churches. Some churches practice one form of baptism and others a different form. Some Christians believe that certain gifts of the Spirit have ceased, and other Christians say that God still gives these gifts. Some preachers believe in a premillennial return of Christ, and others believe in a realized millennium. Doctrine divides us at times, but doctrine also unites us. What is it that unites Christians? I do not mean who unites Christians, that would be the Holy Spirit. What is the unity that we have as Christians who worship in different churches and denominations? It is the gospel of God's grace. The gospel unites us. Several years ago, I was witnessing to a friend and he posed a question to me. He asked me what it was that I would die for. What was it that was so important to me that I would fight to the death to defend? And he was not speaking about my family or my friends, loved ones. He was speaking about my core values, my religious convictions. I ask you the same question, my friends. What doctrinal convictions would you fight to the death to defend? There are many convictions that I hold very dear to my heart that I would not die to defend. The gospel is my line in the sand. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God's grace, is the central message of Christianity that I would die to defend. You can take all else away from me, but never ask me to deny my faith in the grace of Jesus Christ to save my soul and yours. That I will never do by God's help. The gospel unites us in our Christian faith, but a gospel worth uniting for is a gospel worth fighting for. Paul faced that same dilemma in Galatians 2. Every generation of Christians face the same battle sooner or later. We must fight for that which unites us, or the Christian faith devolves into religious sectarianism or a cultural Christianity. We must be absolutely clear about the essence of the Christian faith if we are to possess a faith worth believing. A gospel worth uniting for is a gospel worth fighting for. So notice, first of all, that fighting for the gospel begins with personal confrontation. Galatians 2, verses 1 and 2. Then, 
after an interval of fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Paul describes a second visit to Jerusalem that took place after his return to Antioch of Syria from the province of Cilicia where he had been preaching the gospel. Barnabas had invited him to come to Antioch to partner in the preaching ministry of the church there. Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem with a young Gentile named Titus to use as a test case concerning circumcision. A major theological fight was brewing in the church over the issue of Gentile conversion to Christianity. On the one side were Paul, Barnabas, and the Gentile believers who were steadfast that the gospel was enough. Circumcision was not necessary to become a Christian. On the other side were the Judaizers. These were influential Jews who professed to be Christians. They may even have been accepted as Christians within the Jerusalem church. These Judaizers argued that not only did you have to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, but you had to perform certain Jewish rituals to be or become a Christian. They added circumcision and other Jewish works to the grace of Christ. It was Christ plus circumcision that made a person a Christian. The apostles were caught in the middle. They agreed with Paul and Barnabas about the sufficiency of Christ for salvation, but they wanted to keep the peace in the Jerusalem church. The apostles were afraid that the doctrinal debate would divide the church. They did not want to see a church split, so they were wavering on some of these cultural issues because they wanted to keep everyone happy. All of this debate is very early in the life of the church. The church was in her infancy, and this issue threatened to destroy her. So Paul and Barnabas, who were preaching in the church in Antioch at this time, traveled to Jerusalem to meet with the other leaders in private. I believe that this visit coincides with Acts eleven twenty-seven to 30 and is not the later visit to Jerusalem for the public council in Acts 15. The later public Jerusalem council in Acts 15 represents the culmination of this controversy, which began much earlier and has been festering for some time in the church. James had written his book a few years before this, and the Judaizers had perhaps taken from his book and their own ideas, and had formulated additional cultural works to be added to the gospel. Circumcision was an additive. Now the church was beginning to deal with the critical issue. And here it is. 
can you add anything to the gospel without destroying the gospel? Can you add anything to the gospel without destroying the gospel? Paul goes to Jerusalem to face these leaders in a personal confrontation. You do not fight for the gospel in absentia. You fight face to face and person to person. Verse 2 tells us that he presented to them the gospel which he preached. The New American Standard translation, unfortunately, used the word submit, which seems to give the impression that Paul was looking for the approval of the apostles. He submitted his gospel to them for their authorization. However, this is not what Paul was doing, as the context makes very clear. Paul was not submitting the gospel for their approval, or else the previous verses in chapter 1 would be meaningless. It would be better to say that Paul presented the gospel to the apostles. He laid the gospel before them as he made his argument. Paul met with the leaders of the Jerusalem church privately because he feared that a public meeting would create more heat than light. It's just common sense and Christian courtesy to meet in private first. I do not believe that Paul was presenting his gospel to them in order for them to determine if it was true or not. Paul already knew it was true by divine revelation from Christ himself. Paul was fearful that they might undermine all his hard work among the Gentiles by what they said. This is what he meant by the expression, run in vain. It's an athletic metaphor. If a split developed between the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church over so crucial an issue, the damage would be catastrophic. Paul wanted to avoid such a church split. All his work, his race, so to speak, would have been in vain. The gospel which Paul presented to the apostles is the gospel he had preached and was continuing to preach to the Gentiles. What is that gospel, that message of good news? I used to teach church history at the Bible College, and often I asked students on an essay exam to identify those doctrines which are essential, necessary to be a Christian. What doctrines must you believe to be a Christian? Sometimes I would get pages and pages of doctrines to the point that the student would end up in a church of one, he or she by himself or herself. It is the church of me, myself, and I because no one else will agree with all of those doctrines. A doctrinal statement like that is fine if you are describing your personal doctrinal convictions, but not if you are defining what someone must believe to be a Christian. What is the bottom line? What is the essential gospel which must never be compromised and apart from which Christianity does not exist? Well, Paul defines that gospel elsewhere, but I think we can summarize it this way from the New Testament. 
there are five basic elements in the central message of Christianity. One, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Two, Christ died for our sins on the cross. Three, Christ rose again from the dead in bodily form. Four, salvation comes by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone. And five, Christ will come back in bodily form. These doctrines have been validated down through church history as the essential doctrines, the core doctrines of Christianity. You will notice that they all revolve around the person of Christ. Christology is at the core of Christianity. Now we could state these doctrines in theological terms such as substitutionary atonement or justification by faith, but the message is still the same. All genuine Christians agree on these doctrines, and anyone who does not is not a Christian. It's that simple. I sometimes hear people say that all you have to do is have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Doctrine does not matter. Well, that is simply naive. The content of the relationship is vital. You cannot have a relationship without knowing information about the person with whom you have a relationship. That content is doctrine, whether you want to call it doctrine or not. We must be willing to defend the gospel by personal confrontation whenever necessary. We must not shy away from the fight or we lose the essence of our faith. Second principle, fighting for the gospel requires visible courage in verses 3 through 5. Fighting for the gospel requires visible courage. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. These verses are very difficult grammatically in the Greek text. They indicate very strong emotion on Paul's part because as he tries to explain what happened, he does so in what amounts to be broken sentences. It's like we do when we get so angry or emotional about something that we don't use good English grammar as we speak. What is Paul so upset about? Apparently, the Judaizers, who are called false brethren in this verse, had infiltrated the church leadership so much that they were acting like spies on the freedom of believers. The words translated, sneaked in to spy out, were used of spies who would smuggle themselves into an enemy camp to destroy it. Apparently, Paul realized how serious the problem was when he began to talk with the leadership of the church only to discover that there were spies all around him. It is sad, but 
too often true that there are influential people in the church who care more about the cultural trappings of their faith than they do about the gospel. They spy out Christians who don't fit their lifestyle and mark those Christians as unspiritual because they don't measure up to an arbitrary set of rules. The picture we have here is that Peter, James, and John were wavering and failing to take a strong stand on these issues because of all the false brethren who were putting political pressure on them. They wanted to keep the peace. After all, many of these brethren were powerful and influential leaders in the Christian community. I can see the apostles saying something like this. These are good people, moral and upright. They are very religious, and they have a great deal of influence in the church. The church will be hurt if we become divisive over this issue. We need to be careful that we don't offend them. We need to love them. We need to accept them, not be divisive and confront them. Perhaps they were even privately suggesting to Paul that he might tone down his rhetoric, be more diplomatic. Don't be such a radical, Paul. Don't be divisive. Help us keep the peace. Why don't you circumcise Titus to placate them? That's not so much to ask, is it? But Paul and Barnabas stood firm. There could be no retreat and no surrender, because when we compromise the gospel, we compromise Christianity. The Judaizers were adding a cultural conviction about circumcision to the gospel, but in so doing they were denying the sufficiency of the gospel. Many times Christians add to the gospel cultural, political, or even moral litmus tests of what a Christian must do to be a Christian. Anything that adds to the gospel is wrong, and we must not compromise on this issue. Notice that Paul calls these leaders false brethren. They're not genuine believers. They're not Christians. If anyone denies the central message of Christianity, he is not a Christian, though he professes it profusely. Paul also says that they wanted to take Christians back into bondage. You see, when you give up the gospel of God's grace and submit to religious scruples to be saved, you place yourself back into bondage. The gospel of human works brings bondage, while the gospel of divine grace brings freedom. If you submit to religious, cultural, or political litmus tests for Christianity— then you enslave yourself to the performance standards that others set up for you. You must live by their rules. Paul says, why give up your freedom in Christ for bondage to others? Paul writes, we didn't yield even for an hour. There was no hesitation, no compromise. We didn't even slip for a few moments. Titus, their test case, was never circumcised or the gospel compromised. 
Paul and Barnabas never wavered so as to keep the gospel pure for everyone. Now that took real courage. And the church has always needed men and women of courage and conviction in every generation who will stand up to those who would co-opt Christianity for social gain. One of my favorite characters in American church history is a preacher named Jedediah Morse. I'm sure you've never heard of him, but he stood firm at a crucial moment of New England church history. Jedediah Morse was a congregational church minister in the late 1700s when Unitarianism was just beginning to influence the churches. Unitarianism believed that Jesus Christ was not God. He was just a man, and that you were saved by your good deeds. To be Christian was to be moral, to be good. Jedediah Morse joined the Boston Association of Ministers and served on the board of Harvard Divinity School with another young minister named William Ellery Channing. As time progressed, however, Morse realized that Channing and others were closet Unitarians. They didn't believe in the deity of Christ or the substitutionary atonement. So Morse confronted Channing and the other influential pastors on the board of Harvard Divinity School. They argued that they were just Christians with different positions on some issues, but they all should set those differences aside for the good of the church. The battle began to rage until it came to a head when a new professor was named in 1805 to be chairman of the theology department at Harvard Divinity School. Henry Ware was a Unitarian, and Morse refused to accept his appointment. Jedediah Morse resigned from the board of Harvard and published his accusations against Channing, Ware, and the leadership of Harvard Divinity School. William Channing went on to become the leader of a movement that took about one-fifth of all the congregational churches in New England with him into Unitarianism. Church splits occurred all over as the battle raged in churches. Jedediah Morse left the congregational church and became the founder of the now famous Park Street Church in Boston and one of the founders of a brand new seminary named Andover Seminary. My friends, I applaud men like Jedediah Morse. There are times when our Christian faith is worth fighting for. We cannot cooperate in our ministry with those who deny the central message of Christianity. We have to have courage and refuse to compromise so that we can defend the truth of the gospel. Remember, the gospel worth uniting for is the gospel worth fighting for. Third principle. Notice that fighting for the gospel results in spiritual unity. Fighting for the gospel results in spiritual unity. Galatians 2 verses 6 through 10. But from those who were of high reputation, 
what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Here is the wonderful paradox of genuine Christian unity. Real Christian unity can only be achieved if we are willing to fight for the truth of the gospel around which we can unite. There does seem to be an implication that Paul was a little annoyed with Peter, James, and John for even being swayed by the arguments of the Judaizers. He repeats this expression, those who were of reputation, twice in the passage, verse 2 and verse 6. And then he adds that they were reputed to be pillars of the church. Paul is being a little sarcastic when he says that because he also points out that in God's eyes there is no partiality, even if humans seem to treat one another as more important. Paul was annoyed with the apostles for wavering on this crucial issue. And Paul wins the argument. He is able to convince the apostles that they need to take a stand on the gospel and the gospel alone if Christianity is to remain pure and true. This is the only hope for spiritual unity in the body of Christ. So, the apostles shake hands together. What a handshake! What a handshake! This is the handshake of Christian unity. They agreed together to stand firm for the truth of the gospel, even if they dis disagree on other matters. There is a sweetness in our fellowship because we are united on the essentials of our faith. By the way, between these five men, Peter, James, John, Paul, and Barnabas, 21 out of the 27 New Testament books were written and perhaps 22 out of 27, if Barnabas was the author of Hebrews. What a handshake of Christian unity. They agree to split up the work and focus on different ministries with different emphases. Peter, James, and John will focus on a ministry to the Jews, while Paul and Barnabas will focus on a ministry to the Gentiles. It's not that there will be two different Gospels, only two different ministries of the same Gospel. Social, political, and cultural differences are fine, as long as we keep the central message of Christianity pure. The unity 
is a spiritual unity. It's not an organizational unity. We can be one with respect to the gospel and yet be many organizational entities. You see, my friends, God's grace leaves room for personal disagreements without destroying the spiritual unity we have in Christ. There's a story told about a Quaker who owned an ornery old cow. Every time he milked her, she was hard to handle. One morning, she was particularly difficult. When he began to milk her, she stepped on his foot. He groaned silently as he pulled his foot out. Next, she swished her tail in his face. And then she kicked over the half-full bucket of milk. The Quaker started mumbling to himself, but he never lost his cool. When he was finished, he heaved a great sigh of relief, picked up his bucket and stool to leave. As he was leaving, she kicked him hard against the barn wall a few feet away. That did it. He stood up, marched around in front of the cow, and stared into her big brown eyes. He shook his long, bony finger at her and shouted, Thou dost know that I am a Quaker. Thou dost know that I cannot strike thee back. But I can sell thee to a Presbyterian. Many people today seem to think that denominations are unbiblical and that there should never be any different church organizations, particularly in the same town, because denominations destroy the unity of the church. I disagree. The early church had their own disagreements and functioned in different organizational ministries, sometimes even in the same city. They chose to focus on different ministries and respect the differences that they had in Christ. They had different ministries, but not different messages. And that is the key to Christian unity. We can disagree about many areas in Christianity, but it is the gospel that unites us. The same is true today. We can and should unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if we disagree about many other issues. The handshake of spiritual unity is powerful. Baptists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals can unite together to preach the gospel without giving up some of our differences. In fact, those differences allow us to reach different people with the gospel that we all believe. As the saying goes, in things essential, unity, in things non-essential, liberty, in all things, charity. We don't have to agree on everything to unite around the gospel. We do have to agree on the gospel. The gospel is essential while all else is peripheral. That is why fighting for the gospel results in genuine spiritual unity. We're living in a day of compromise and accommodation. Christians are stressing that Doctrine is not important anymore. Many argue 
that you can believe many different things as long as you have a God experience or a spiritual encounter with Jesus. The doctrinal content of that experience doesn't matter. We have no right to judge the spiritual experience of someone else. We are told to be loving and not judgmental of people who have many different spiritual experiences and doctrinal convictions. Others may add all sorts of religious rituals to the gospel and teach that you must follow those rituals to be a Christian. Then there are those who add various rules that we must follow to be a Christian. Don't do this and don't do that. Create litmus tests for our faith. We are told that unless we militantly oppose this moral issue or support that political party, then our Christianity is suspect. A cultural Christianity develops where lifestyles become more important than the gospel. Bill Hall of the Bonhoeffer Project calls it the Gospel Americana, where American culture so shapes the gospel that it creates cultural Christians. And the same thing can happen in other countries as well. My friends, we are clouding the gospel of God's grace whenever we add human works to that gospel. We can cloud the gospel by adding requirements to it, or we can cloud that gospel by subtracting doctrine from it. Either way, the gospel becomes meaningless, and without the gospel there's no salvation. It isn't enough to have some sort of spiritual experience. The content of that experience is crucial. It isn't enough to perform certain religious activities to be saved. We must defend the gospel against such additives. And that is why I say to you, the gospel worth uniting for is the gospel worth fighting for.